My name is Rand Eberhard. I get to serve in the Congregational Care Department as the Care Ministry Pastor. I know many of you and some I don't, and it is my honor this morning to share uh, time before the Lord and set our hearts before Him and just receive from Him His truth, His grace, His love, His invitation to join Him in mission, be a part of what He has created us to be and do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that each of us matter to you. You know us by name. You entrusted us with life. None of us are self-made. None of us are a mistake. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us in the trial And you are for us, even as the world looks onto our lives with judgment and competition and pressure and opinion. We can set our hearts before you anew each day and be empowered with your word, your living word, your Holy Spirit, counselor, comforter, that your word says we're thoroughly equipped for every good work by the word of God. So make it come alive for us this morning. Illuminate for us the footpath, the pathway to peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm not trying to have a radio voice. (laughs) This this mic, for some reason, I sound like really... I'm not trying to do that. So the second Sunday of Advent is Peace Sunday. Coincidentally, in our best efforts to manifest or experience the peace of God in our lives, we try to control. We try to create an environment where things work to our favor, according to our perspective of how it should go. Interestingly, we sacrifice our peace when we try to control someone or something outside of our control. But from our vantage point, we think we have better ideas. And we think we have better opinions. Most of the time it ends up in conflict. And one of the remedies to conflict and division is giving up your right to be right. Not having the final word. These are all markings of a selfless life and reliance on the faithfulness of God and assurance that he's at work for the betterment of our lives and those around us. So we don't have to control, but rather have confidence that the Lord is at work in the unseen, manifesting himself through each of us, his children, his people. So as we labor in the things of God, the glory of God is evidenced in this selflessness, this cross, this waiting with excellence. And I want to break down this morning what that looks like a bit for each of us, waiting on the Lord to to demonstrate uh, his faithfulness, his favor, affecting each of us for faith, hope, and love. I had two little brothers. One died tragically in in a preventable death. We all know that God has numbered our days, and our day is what it is. So there are no mistakes under the sun. My other brother is gonna hit Lieutenant Colonel this year in the Air Force. So he's a, he's a high achiever. And 
He told me a couple of years ago he was sitting in a meeting room with generals and colonels and all these distinguished officers, and the general that was speaking said, how many in here are part of the baby boomers? Hands go up, most of them in the room. Hundreds of people, a couple hundred in there. How many of you are part of Generation X? Large number of hands go up. He goes, well, congratulations, Xers. You're officially the most unsupervised generation in modern history. <laughs> and, and a lot of us can attest to that, the whole latchkey kid concept and, and growing up in this world where you just don't have a lot of supervision, a lot of guardrails on your life, and a lot of uh, 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 influence outside of those who are in your immediate area. Growing up in a neighborhood where you, you conduct your life within a five-mile radius because of where we are as a society, those, those things are, are kind of gone. Those things are, are gone in that technology is exponentially moving beyond our ability to keep up. So this concept of waiting, where we're indoctrinated and, and influenced by social media and all of these things in our lives that we're inundated with, this, uh, this pressure to conform, this pressure to demonstrate how significant you are to whoever's watching by what you can achieve and what you present as the appearance of success or relevance. So it, left the, it leaves this void in our spirits that we only matter based on what we do, not in who God says we are. So God is doing a work in our lives to bring us to the end of ourselves that we don't have to pr produce anything beyond the cross, the gospel of peace resonating in our hearts and evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace. So for the coming year, I have a goal, having failed my, uh, my goal for 2022, which was be undefendable. I'm easily offended, and I'm a fault finder, and I have all these other flaws, these character liabilities. But my goal for the current year was to be unoffendable. Okay, so didn't do a great job at that, but at least consciously I was thinking about what might my response be to that hater or that fault finder in my life? And you realize how, how quickly we default to this self-focused mentality of, well, I'm more important. Why would he say that? And we're not. We all matter. We all are entrusted with life, and we all are given this opportunity to receive a divine assignment on a daily basis, to receive from God his plan for us and to live by the truth that should be foundational. So growing up with this, this absence of supervision to some degree, I had great parents. They parented me well. But at 17 or 18 years old, I jumped in my dad's car and drove down to Tampa Bay. Anybody else have that kind of like, was that lawless or was that just like me? I don't know, but that's just kind of how I grew up. It's just, we, we, we had the, the, the run of the neighborhood. We went anywhere we went. And our little girls, Jenny and myself, have three daughters, and 16, 14, and 10, they don't go out a whole lot. They don't even venture beyond the stop sign at the end of our cul-de-sac. So we're learning from our mistakes in that as a, as a culture and as a group of people that 
We're trying to, as Dr. Youssef has laid out this 10-year vision, reach the next generation with the gospel in its entirety. So my goal of being unoffendable comes this year with a slight revision, and that is to have this radiant peace in my life that people are marked by this freedom that is evidenced on my countenance. And that only comes by way of this disciple of Christ mentality, which we're assessing on a personal level, where are my unmet needs, spiritually speaking? And how am I tending to those faithfully? That I'm becoming a contributor instead of a taker. That I'm becoming an encourager instead of a judge. That I'm becoming this person that lives from their identity and not towards it. These things are made simple in the gospel, but we complicate them because we spend more time in worldly matters like social media and like things that entertain us and prepare us to essentially win an argument, be it political or sports or cultural uh, matters. We don't really care about the person. We care about being right. So we're left in this place of just constant production and constant pressure and constant expectation. But when we can take an honest look at that, and we can look at even the difficulties that life presents, and we can sit in them as student instead of victim, we can begin hearing God's heart in the, the mess one of the questions that I asked you today is, what is behind these presenting issues for you? Be it anxiety and anger and avoidance and resentment and fear of failure, fear of man, whatever it might be, what are the things behind these presenting issues? The season of Advent anticipates the coming of Christ from three different perspectives. Messiah coming into history, Messiah coming into our hearts and lives, and it alerts for his second coming as the king. Advent has a past, a present, and a future to itself. The past informs the present, and it gives hope for the future. So how does your past empower you or hinder you? Is there an unforgiveness area? Is there a an area that you wish you could go back and do differently. Part of moving through the past and being a student, disciple of Christ, is thinking deeply about our problems and how did we get where we are instead of just looking at them as a consequence or as uh, a trial, but thinking beneath the surface to the root system of these things that hinder the fullness of life that God designed for us. The Apostle Paul said of Jesus' teaching, for it is better to give than to receive. John the Baptist prepares the way in Matthew 3, 1 through 3, which is our central text this morning. And it says this, in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. 
Isaiah 40, verse 3 and, and forward, is a key text that he's calling attention to in this, in this section of Scripture, announcing the good news that God reigns, the God of Israel reigns. The coming, the Lord is coming as a triumphant king, that we are to prepare the travel, his travel with ease, removing obstacles that would hinder the ease of entry into our world and into our lives and into our hearts. So again, where might we be self-aware? Where might we be sensitive to the social context in which the Lord has entrusted us to affect for good? And where might we be called to wait on him when we're indoctrinated with instant gratification? The mentality is this, I want what I want and I want it now and I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. We're all great at waiting until we're asked, hey, wait right there, Paul. I'll tell you when I'm done. We're all great at that. And when I was coming in this morning, I was sitting at, the stoplight, at a stoplight to go left. I don't get the green arrow. And I'm sitting there just wrestling in the flesh and wrestling in, in anxiety, going, well, this is very uh, unfair, and I just wanted to run the light. I really did. I wanted to run the light. And I'm sitting there, there anticipating getting here, anxious about standing up here, presenting my heart and life to you. And I'm reminded that this waiting on God is in every day, every moment, every situation in our lives where we want to remedy and fix and control and see and impose our agenda we can't control people, and we can't control the things that happen to us. But we can seek the Lord's heart and respond biblically to all of these things. So anxiety is the absence of guarantee. And we wrestle with this, this anxiousness about trying to just make ourselves happy and what's going to go wrong for me. And we live in this, we camp out in this space of fear where we build these scenarios in our lives and our, in our minds and we obsess over things that aren't even really based in truth. And Dr. Youssef always says, we know who has the final word. And to me, there, there's great assurance in landing in that truth and that promise that if the final word is, you are the child of God, you were bought with a price. You matter just as much as the next person. The foot is level at the cross of Jesus. As we wait on the Lord's return, we're encouraged to go deep. But how do we do this? The kingdom of heaven, as announced in this text, seems counterintuitive. We're made rich by giving away. The first will be last, swimming upstream, forgiving 70 times 7. They just don't make sense in the natural but in the Spirit of God, all these things ring true in the heart, and from the heart we respond and we live, and we have this attractional nature on our lives that looks Christ-like. It's been said that the paradox of soul contentment is this. When we die to ourselves, our soul comes alive. A cross, the birth of a child, the resurrected king, coming back for us 
to take his church home to eternity, a new heaven, a place where there is no suffering, there's no grief, there's no sorrow. Dr. Bruce spoke on this a few weeks ago, and that sermon greatly influenced my life, as it did many of you who were here. But there is a, a preparation period of cleaning up your life and being the best version of yourself. You're loved, you're redeemed, you're atoned for, you're bought with a price, you matter. So don't shame yourself into the arrival of God, making sure that you beat yourself up enough to be prepared. And don't achieve as if the only thing that matters is how good you look upon his arrival. But from the heart, tend to the matters that are loose ends. Tend to the unforgiveness. Tend to the, the anxiety. Tend to the things that are hindering the freedom and the peace of God in your life. This comes by way of the cross. You die to self, you come alive in Christ himself. John the Baptist performed baptisms. He couldn't forgive sins. He couldn't remove the power of sin and impart the spirit. John's emphasis was on repentance. John doesn't tell us how to turn, or to turn, uh, but he leaves the discerning to the conscience, which often knows what is wrong. Spiritually discerning, can we articulate our convictions? And more importantly, do we embody them? Do we embody our convictions? What for you is right or wrong? Discerning things spiritually should be marked in our lives that we're going to take the high road. It might take a minute for our feelings to line up with tough decisions, especially when forgiveness is at play. But eventually, if we do our part, God's going to do his part, but he's not going to do our part for us. So as we do our part, we're preparing our lives, and we see the Holy Spirit at work as reconciliation and forgiveness come as a byproduct. What happens if we don't tend to our spiritual convictions? And what happens if we don't know how to articulate them? Eventually, the Bible talks about having a seared conscience, where what formerly had been wrong and, and, and definitely is, as you look at the absolute truth of God, the measuring stick, the canon of God, the Bible, it's unchanging. We hold it up to our lives, and we should be empowered by the exposure of our need for God, our need for forgiveness, our need for grace and mercy. So none of us are self-made. We hold our lives up to this thing, and we're restored to the Father's will. We're not shamed. We're not condemned. We're not put over there in the corner until we get it right, we come back by way of the cross instantly on the pathway to peace, the ancient path, God's path. Made clear by John, the kingdom is coming whether we're ready or not, whether we like it or not. The Lord Jesus gives us not only a direction to face, but a way to be in life, a relational God. We turn our hearts to him in worship. We turn our hearts to him in prayer. And then he walks with us. Because his word says if we abide in him and him in us, we are his people. and We are engaged with his matters. And developing a passion around the things of God looks like the have to becomes the want to. 
a life laid down, the cross being central to our thinking, to our feeling, and to our actions. This is what Jesus came for. And in this, this liturgical season, in this season of Advent, we see evidenced in the world of God's creation this dormant season of death where things are put to an end, but the new life emerges. And just around the corner, the spring and the sun and the blue skies, metaphorically speaking, applies to our lives. Whatever trial we're going through, we can be greatly confident that great days are ahead of us. Our attempt at being God, again, looks like control. And it looks like trying to make ourselves relevant and happy, as I said a minute ago. How are we maturing through adversity? Dealing with medical issues, money, money problems, mental health issues, aging parents, addiction, loneliness, anxiety, self-hatred, insecurity, disappointment, suffering, loss, rejection, giving up, seared conscience. Part of it is found in embracing the struggle together with Christ. The Bible calls us to forsake not the assembly of God. And showing up in God's place is part of how we journey together and how we lean on the wisdom of those who, who've walked with the Lord longer than us and how we uh, glean from their victories and their, their overcoming in the cross and their being empowered by the gospel of peace. Testimony, proclamation, all of these things matter. So don't just hang out with people your age, older or younger, but be engaged with the body of Christ because our tendency naturally is to suffer alone, to be in the backdrop of letting life happen to us, internalizing our woundedness and trying to just power through it. Congregational care departmentally and Robin and I work together every day as a gateway of, of the traumatic things of the church that come in on a frequent and consistent basis. And we are part of this response and restoration side of ministry. Elise in the women's ministry has partnered with us in that slate. Many of you, Dave, and it's, it's this co-laboring with humility that creates unity and influence where nobody takes themselves too seriously. And there's this alignment with godly matters where you're positioned for influence and you're furthering the kingdom of God and not hindering. Embracing trials works, looks like working in compliance with the Lord. How has the past fortified your inner being? Are you hindered by the past or shaped with a story of proclamation? I'm just going to read a few things about repentance that are evidenced in the unfolding of the gospel itself. Repentance in the gospel must not be neglected as it is central to and even a launching point for many gospel writers. Repentance was the first word of John the Baptist. Repent was the first word of Jesus' gospel in Matthew 4. 17 and Mark 1, 14 through 15. Repent was the first word in the preaching ministry of the 12 disciples, Mark 6, 12. 
Repent was the first word in the preaching instructions Jesus gave to his disciples after the resurrection. Repent was the first exhortation in the first Christian sermon, Acts 2.38. Repent was the first word shared in Damascus and then in Jerusalem in Paul's ministry, Acts 26.19-20. Repent, turn to God, proving repentance by their deeds. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 is how we might contemplate a deeper uh, application of this, this practical theology. That the, the, the simple gospel is made, made true in our lives when we are a student of the word, a disciple of Christ, and we abide in these things. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. God shone in Saul's heart just as he wants to in ours. Light of the knowledge of the glory of God, a picture and display of God's glory is Jesus himself. And as we worship each week and we look up here at this, this picture of the gospel, I'm constantly reminded of what needs to die what needs to be rebirthed in terms of, of godly things. We're, we're eternally secure as, as people that proclaim Christ as Lord, and he includes us in this mission. So we don't need to be resaved over and over again, but the salvation of Christ looks like Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Jesus knows each of us, he died for us, and he includes us. Our part is proclamation and faith. The awareness, the self-awareness that our sin has left us set apart, and we need reconciliation to the Father. That only comes by way of faith, and faith with a heart that proclaims, thank you, Jesus, that you are the risen and living God, and I am not. Confession, humility, and change. Repentance. In my, in my life, just a, a public uh, confession, I, I struggle with trying to make myself happy. I struggle with the, the things that I'm talking about. I struggle with buying golf putters. And Jenny's, one of our friends walked up to Jenny at the pool over the summer and goes, hey, how many putters does Rand have? And... Jenny's like, I don't know. He's got a little rack downstairs. But the, the problem is not the putter itself or the, if a person in here is dealing with substance abuse, it's not the alcohol on the shelf. It's the alcohol on the heart. So the confession is I need to come to the end of myself and trying to make myself happy or dealing with trauma or dealing with the heaviness of life by just going to buy a putter. Like, What is that going to do? I'm happy for one second, and then I need the next thing in order to be okay, and I'm never okay. <laughs> so, consumeristic Rand, pray for him. He's a problem child. <laughs> slow to anger, slow to speak. We try to rush the Lord, but God has a process. We're forced into a process through Advent. We're great about waiting until we're asked to, just as I said. Almost ran that red light. That was in my heart, and I had to deal with it. Sin of the heart. 
I want to close by sharing this, this compelling story that captures all of what I'm trying to, to describe here. Uh, just a couple of days ago, Paul Reeves and I went down to Grady Hospital to visit one of our church members who has a good friend who was shot five times. And it's just unthinkable that we live in a world where somebody would shoot another person out of selfishness or anger or whatever it is. This young guy, 24 years old, we walk in the room. His name is Nick, and his girlfriend was in there. And Paul and I really didn't know, I mean, what, what are we going to do ministerially in here to, to give this dude any kind of hope at all? And as we looked at his body just shot up and, and cut up on, we then were observant of his countenance, this radiance of peace that you just couldn't argue that away. You couldn't minimize that. Like this guy had some serious freedom on his life, and we're in there to just walk love into his life, and we're, we're taking note going, wow, this dude has a whole lot more influence than we do. Just, just the evidence of Christ in him. So he says to us, I said, you know, we ministered to him. We took, we took him into the Word just a bit, into the testimonial, and we, we just explained the importance of his life. I said, you know, did, what is God showing you amidst this trauma? He goes, you know, man, I cried out in prayer as I was laying there dying, and I begged God to let me live. And when he said that, I said I was just blown away by by what was happening in this conversation. This poor kid, 24 years old, is paralyzed from the waist down. And we prayed for healing. We had anointing oil, and his girlfriend and Paul and all of us grabbed hands, and we just sought the Lord for healing. So then he says to me, to us, he goes, "You know, even if I never walk again, I'm alive, and that's good enough for me." And that really just hit my heart. Is that good enough for me? Or do I need something else? Or do I need to be or do or have in order to find resolution, contentment, resolve, to be fully present where I am? And that's the peace of God which transcends understanding. And it was evidence in his countenance that he believes in Jesus. And regardless of what life presents, he's going to be God's person. And I encourage each of us to take seriously the opportunity to live life and to say, I'm alive and that's good enough for me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Nick's evidence of a changed heart, a changing life. I pray for a the restoration of, of his life in its entirety, that he walk again and that he be your person to testify to the goodness of God. Lord, I pray that same prayer for each one of us this morning. Show us with the eyes of our heart what needs to change, where we need to die, and empower us to come alive with the fullness of Christ as the cross is present in our lives. So we wait on you, Lord, with peace deep in our hearts and we thank you that you are the giver and the provider of these things and you've included us in this mission of restoration.
Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.